0: Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle Fenton. I created this podcast to promote collective healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that, as different as we may seem, we're all just people, and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today, we'll be talking with Wen Sato, a pediatric ICU nurse based in Los Angeles. Her 2017 TEDx talk, How Grief Helped Me Become a Better Caregiver, was so successful it was promoted to the main ted webpage in 2020 huiwen and her husband have two daughters two tortoises and one complicated dog one quick note before we get started there will be some fairly raw discussions of cancer and going through cancer treatment on this podcast so please just take care while listening Khoi welcome to the Apologies Podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you. It's good to have you here. So we've gotten a little bit into your professional background in the intro, but could you give us a little glimpse into who you are as a person?
1: Well, I am for the most part, second-generation Taiwanese-American. My parents came to the States uh, when I was one year old, so I pretty much have grown up uh, here since I was a baby. I am a Christian, and I realize that in this particular point in our country's history that's uh, it could be interpreted or misinterpreted a lot of different ways but what I will say is that my faith runs deep in my self-identity and I believe that deep love and mercy have to drive everything that we are about and everything that we do I am married, Uh, my husband Steve and I have been married for 18, almost 19 years. We have two daughters, um, they're seven and nine years old, so they're still fairly young. Let's see, personality-wise, I think I would describe myself as a very social introvert. Um, So people who know me really well know that I absolutely need my downtime, but other people are very surprised when I say I'm an introvert. I love getting to know people, um, but I don't do well in big crowds. So I love deep one-on-ones, but you throw me in a big crowd and I'm the one hiding in the corner looking for that one-to-one conversation. (laughs) Um, I, I think I can sometimes come across as uh, fairly serious and quiet. I am a bit of an old soul, but I also have a reputation for being quite a prankster. And what I thrive on is the shock that that, uh, I get from people because they don't expect it coming from this seemingly serious, quiet person. So I have a a lot of stories.
0: (laughs) I was just speaking of shock. I'm a little shocked. Yeah. Can you give us like what would what would one of your favorite pranks that you pulled be?
1: Oh, one of my favorite pranks, I would say uh, one of my coworkers at the hospital, he and I had a back and forth, just constantly pranking each other. And one day. Uh, someone was making a coffee run downstairs and he said, I would love uh, black coffee. And so I texted the friend who was making the run and I said, Hey, I want you to buy a second cup of black coffee and bring it to me. So we will have his actual desired cup, (laughs) but uh, I had her bring me a second cup and I just spiked it with an obscene amount of salt. (laughs) (laughs) And then we delivered it to him and I watched him drink this disgustingly salty coffee <laughs> and it was just the best it made me but so did happy he try
0: to be like polite and swallow it down did he spit it out he was very poker
1: face about it he took a sip and just kind of paused a moment and looked at me and said
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, uh, pretty great. oh workplace pranks are the best yeah it hasn't happened in a while but my my team and I there used to be a cohort of us who would engage in a sort of serial prank called the soggy bottom have you heard of this no <laughs> so a soggy bottom is pretty much what it sounds like you wet a chair that you know somebody's gonna sit in <laughs> and the the horrible part of this for the sit er is that by the time you have realized like the water has seeped in, it is too late and you're you've already been soggied and then you have to proceed like that for the uh, the rest of the day. So
1: this is amazing. I am I'm making a note to add that to my list. Add <laughs> the soggy bottom
0: to, to your repertoire. Yes, I have both given and received them and they are always good for a laugh. <laughs> Okay, so you're a prankster, and I'm also, so I'm also a dog mom and an animal lover, so I have to also ask about your, quote, complicated dog. (laughs) Say more, please.
1: Yes. Oh, Max, Max, Max. Uh, We... I, I was the I was the holdout to getting this dog. My husband and my kids were begging for him, and so he was a um, COVID quarantine dog. We got him in September 2020. He was a rescue, and I gave in. I, you know, I we met him, and we knew he had some issues, probably some abuse in the background. But he seemed to take to all of us okay. So we said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And long story short, he hates my husband. He hates men in general but especially my husband. <laughs> so he can be just really sweet with me and the girls and the second my husband walks in or stands up or whatever he's just ready to kill him. So um it may he doesn't fit the comforting family dog <laughs> picture that I think we all had in our heads and makes family time actually pretty tense. So Aww. we're working on his emotions and reactions and All of that. But we also have two tortoises who are kind of my favorite because they're mellow and quiet and sleep half the year. And they're just the easiest animals. They're very interesting, too. So their names are Dumpling and Rocket, which is just the best. My (laughs) kids named them and they're fantastic. They're sleeping through life right now.
0: (laughs) So you were talking about being an old soul and, and an extroverted introvert. Would you also describe yourself as, I don't know, a natural born caregiver, like given the vocation you found yourself in?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I was young, my original desire for my profession was to be a counselor. So ever since I was young, I've always been really, really interested in sort of the depths of human Emotions, thoughts, um, how we go through really hard things. And I wanted to be a part of helping people, like being present with people in those times of their lives. And, you know, as, as, I grew up, my parents really wanted me to move more towards healthcare. And so after some meandering of trying to figure out where my place was, there was a period of time when I did uh, research in nursing homes. Uh, It was with the frail elderly. We were doing a lot of feeding, exercise, toileting, interventions. And I, I loved the research goals in that we wanted to try to improve staffing for them. But what i really loved more than anything was the interaction with the residents. And a lot of my colleagues there were telling me, you would make a really, really good nurse. And there were certain limitations to the research work that kept me from interacting with the residents the way I wanted to. So I went back to school and became a nurse. And that was when I realized, this is the profession I've wanted to do all my life and just hadn't realized it until until now. Yeah, it suits me really well, because it's so all encompassing. It's heart, mind, body, soul. You know, you meet so many different people in so many different situations. It's very, very rich. And I, I just I love it. It's it's an amazing profession.
0: And there's there are many types of nursing. So how did you end up in a pediatric ICU? Yeah, I didn't.
1: Expect myself to end up in pediatrics because I am such an old soul. I didn't think I was fun enough to actually be a pediatric nurse.
0: I mean, you um, have now you're you have pet tortoises. That's your opening. <laughs> That's your opening fun. That is my kid.
1: opening fun. Actually, when I show pictures and videos of my pets to my patients, it's a really lovely icebreaker connecting point. Um, but yeah, I, I really didn't think I would start in pediatrics. But when I did a rotation at Children's Hospital, I found that I was much better with kids, I guess maybe specifically in the caregiver role for kids than I thought I would be. And and then when I stepped foot into the ICU, that was when I realized, oh, this is perfect because I could care for kids and just uh, kids are are so precious and so amazing and they they're so vulnerable but they're consolable in a way that's different than adults and I don't. It, it just it worked really well for me. But when I got to the ICU, I think it, it was an especially good fit because I realized that I was getting the the privilege of caring for children, but also it was meeting the old soul part of me of connecting with the parents and uh, the exploring and being present in the journeys that they were on as they were dealing with the health crises of their children, and I found that. Uh, Really, really meaningful, and it it, just—I think the one-to-one focus in the ICU because I'm not someone who loves to be scattered a million places, and I I love to just go in deep. Like I said, I'm not a big party person. So if you put me somewhere where I have four to six to however many more patients, I—I'm just kind of a scattered mess. But if you put me somewhere where I just dive deep with one or two patient
0: cases. And stories. It's just, it fits me so, so well. Oh, that, yeah. So, you are someone who seems to genuinely love this work and it seems to align so perfectly with you. And yet, there's still challenges that come with that. So, in addition to nursing, you do a lot of education for other healthcare providers. You've spoken and written about your own experiences with burnout as a pediatric ICU nurse and you've shared how because it is so fulfilling and you get such highs along with the lows you know you thought you would that would balance out like the stress and fatigue of seeing so many patients suffer but then these beautiful interactions you get to have and I think you've learned that it can still get to you that the work can still get to you so how do those feelings of burnout impact your ability to practice nursing or I guess let me back up and say how did you first notice burnout? manifesting in you. Yeah.
1: I I think when I first started as a nurse, uh there there's just a lot to learn. There's a lot that you're trying to um wrap your mind around and sort of d- develop a sense of expertise and confidence in terms of just the the healthcare itself. All the technicalities of the medications and the therapies and time management and everything. And uh, As those things started to become a little bit more familiar and muscle memory, I started to see how there was this other layer of the emotional demands and emotional burdens that was still very, very unfamiliar to me. Even as somebody who was very wired to not be intimidated by hard situations and to want to go deep, because there is such an incredible variety of situations and stories that come through our doors. I was constantly being presented with scenarios that I had just never come up against, that I never had to wrap my mind around. Uh, a A toddler who who drowns in a pool, which in and of itself is terrible, but then you add to that, well, the toddler was being cared for by a very loving foster parent who had finally given some stability to this child's life and was about to launch the child into just a really beautiful and hopeful kind of future and you know at a birthday party thrown by this loving parent things just go awry and now the toddler has drowned and you know there's just there were so many layers of so many cases that I I found myself running up against these are the things up close that are rare but they happen and I see them. I'm in the room talking with a parent. I can't turn off the computer and say, well, I just can't read that news story anymore. Like, it's a story that I am to a certain degree living out with my patients as I care for them. And there were just things that I started to have to reckon with. And I I was finding that both for myself and for my coworkers. You know, we were all learning the scientific practice of nursing, but I found that so many of us were running up against the struggles with the art of nursing, of I don't know what to do with these stories. And I don't I don't know what to make of them. I These conversations that I'm having with the parents aren't so delicate and hard and new to me. And then I'm just supposed to go home and clock out and be okay and then come back and, you know, walk into whatever the next case is. I, I think that it's just something we were never truly prepared for when we went into this profession. We were trained to do the work of nursing, but we weren't trained well to try to process these stories that we become a part of. And I think that's where I saw and see a lot of people just get stuck of, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to keep a heart in this and also set boundaries. Like it's all very, very fuzzy and it's too human to just turn off you know, a switch at the end of the day. I think that that was the piece in terms of burnout. I mean, the physical work, there there's burnout issues there for other reasons. But in terms of just the deep heart burdens, that was and is what I see a lot of us still constantly grappling with.
0: Well, and those those struggles have kind of a, I don't know, a ripple effect. Like I'm thinking about when we spoke uh, prior to this interview, you said something that really resonated with me. And you said a lot of what you contemplate in your work as a nurse and an educator is, and I'm paraphrasing your words, but basically the ways we can end up behaving to people when we're not well. And that hit me so hard in a way I might not be able to articulate, but I think it it really is kind of a good summary of actually why I wanted to do this podcast, because so many of the moments in my life that haunt me are moments where I wasn't being my best self. And sometimes... It might have been just because I simply didn't have the inner resources to do better because there were these internal or external factors, not because I didn't want to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an antidote that's kind of funny, but I still remember when I was in pre-cana counseling with my then fiance, I had to go right from work once. And I so I didn't get to eat between, you know, it was after work in the evening and I was starving. And I'm one of those people like I get Extremely hangry you know, yeah. if my blood sugar drops, I I, am, I know I'm not my best self. So like, I was really grumpy, and we were trying to work through one of these communication exercises. And all I could think about was these cookies sitting on a tray on the yeah. snack table for when we were supposed to break. And so after class, we kind of jokingly but also seriously made this rule that we wouldn't have serious conversations when one of us was hungry or extremely tired. Yeah, and it, and it might be, it might seem silly, but that this I think all ties back to like this greater concept of burnout of we're all humans and no matter how well intentioned we are or how how much we might want to show up we're limited by the same sorts of physical emotional psychological needs and limits and when those aren't met or are or we're asked continuously to push past them it can make it really hard to function the way we'd like to
1: mm-hmm Yeah, I think all of that is very, very valid. And I have struggled a bit with the superhero narrative that's put on not just nurses, but healthcare workers in general. You know, I understand it's meant as a compliment. But I, I also think laden in there is this idea and expectation that just because we're the ones who are inherently wired to do the kind of work that we do, like I, I recognize like not everyone is wired to walk into an ICU with critically ill children and a lot of... Unpleasant physical things that we deal with, you know, not to mention the emotional aspects. But that said, I think that sometimes there's a little too much expectation that. This is I use this a lot in, in presentations that I give. Like, if you're a human being and you're in the midst of a flood, right? Like, I the work that we do can feel like a flood of just emotional weight and and physical demands and all kinds of things. Why do we expect ourselves to walk on water? You know, the reality is that if you are in a flood, you're going to get wet. Like, that's just the reality. And yet, we expect each other in healthcare. Sometimes we expect ourselves to somehow be above it all and not get wet, just walk on water and come back and do it again the next day. And I think that when we're more honest with ourselves of, of course I get wet, of course I'm going to be affected by this because I'm not a superhero at the end of the day. Like, I, uh, yeah, I just, I think it's really important that we reframe the way that we see ourselves.
0: So you did on this kind of same topic of the lived experience of nursing and the need to validate those feelings. You did a TED talk for TEDx Pasadena. The title of that talk is How Grief Helped Me Become a Better Caregiver. And you began it by recounting Jimmy Kimmel finding out about his baby having a heart defect. And you made the observation, no one, not even a celebrity, is immune from unexpected health crises. At some point, each one of us will be profoundly affected by illness, be it in you or in someone you love. And I had watched that talk a while ago, but I was rewatching it in preparation for this conversation. And it kind of gave me chills because you gave that talk in 2017 and as we speak today in 2023 those words kind of have taken on a new meeting and that um, you know celebrities aren't immune from this kind of news but nurses aren't either so if you're willing would you share with us some of what you have been dealing with on the health front
1: yeah <laughs> now that you point that out that is really something. (laughs) Uh, So I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, It was a a lump that I found myself, got checked out, was so sure in the beginning that it would come back benign. And January 20th, I got the phone call uh, with the biopsy results. And they said, we're sorry to tell you it's, it's breast cancer. And I remember suddenly just thinking that I was watching myself, I I guess you could call it almost like an out of body experience. You know, I was just kind of watching myself hold my phone. I was by myself and I reached out for a chair to sort of steady myself. And I, I couldn't say anything except, okay, okay. (laughs) and <laughs> it i it, it's it's all happened so quickly that it still feels very surreal <laughs> um yeah i i think when i when i first when i got that call it was it was very very surreal and I found myself just kind of spinning and I was simultaneously trying to think of all the logistical things that I needed to figure out. I mean, the the, the nurse gave me the information and sort of let it sink in. And then she sort of jumped to, okay, well, your next step is to make an appointment with the surgeon so can we schedule a date? And I sort of shook out of my um, stunned (laughs) silence and said, okay, yeah, let's set a date. And, And I mean, there were so many things that needed to be figured out in the moment of how do I call my husband first and then call my boss and take time off of work? And when do I tell my kids? But I think what was maybe the most disorienting was not just the absolute terror of there's cancer in my body and I don't know how bad it is or what this means for me. Um, But it was sort of the realization that as much as I have dealt with illness and hard things at work and have not shied away from them, that the reality is I can still clock out at work and go home to my normal i i can i could past tense go home to my normal healthy personal life healthy children sort of it was still separate then and i think when i became the person with the cancer diagnosis there was no clocking out. Like, this was going to be my everyday life with this cancer. And then I started to realize that time was taking a whole new dynamic. You know, there's, when you get a cancer diagnosis, there's a lot of waiting that happens. And it's, People are telling me um, who have been through this journey that it's the most tortuous part is the waiting. And I think especially in the very beginning, because you sit with a diagnosis, but you have no idea yet exactly how bad it is. You don't have a plan And the nature of cancer isn't like a broken bone where you just think, well, it's fairly straightforward, you know, a broken bone, you know, you're going to have to go to surgery, get it set, have a recovery time, and it'll be better. And then you go on and you just Try not to have an accident again. With cancer, you know, you just imagine these rogue cells doing whatever they're doing in your body. And every second that you're just waiting on things and not doing something to fight it, you just imagine them wreaking havoc on your body. And you feel so helpless and so terrified and just. Like every second is really just torture, and it it just it now you know when I think about my patients and their their family members who are like, is the doctor going to come anytime soon? Are they do they have the results of the MRI? Like is is anyone coming? Can someone come talk to us? Like uh, you know I I have a different level of appreciation of that urgency and that desperation that they feel of I I need something to wrap my mind around, you know, information, a plan, like understanding something. So my course, I've been really overall very fortunate and I I don't take it lightly. I was able to get surgery pretty quickly and I'm currently recovering from surgery and that's going okay and I'm now waiting. So we think that they got it all, but we're waiting to just confirm that uh, I won't need chemotherapy, we'll see, and I will likely just need uh, radiation and some hormone therapy in the future. So I'm currently at a place where I'm much better. I'm in between surgery and radiation and sort of back in relatively normal rhythms now. But my perspective on (laughs) the patient experience and also the nurse experience is very, very, very different now. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm one, thank you for sharing all that with us. And I'm sure I speak for everyone listening when I say we're glad that The news you've been getting once the bad news came has been you know relatively speaking good I just um I was stuck on you talking about how surreal or out of body this news is and the word that kept bumping around my head was whiplash and I think that's because I've had several people very close to me go through various types of cancer or other severe illnesses or or injuries and I'm always hit by that like immediacy of the change. It's like everything was fine five minutes ago. I mean, the irony with cancer being, you know, it was already there. We just didn't know. Mm -hmm. But that like yesterday, this thing happened or even like, again, five minutes ago, an hour ago, life was one way. And then a few seconds later, Mm -hmm. everything is just so completely different. Yeah. Whiplash is the
1: perfect description for it. it. I... Yeah, I was so, so optimistic that it was benign. And then, you know, I just kind of, all of that optimism obviously just kind of plummeted when I got the news of, uh, of the malignancy and, and then surgery happened pretty quickly. And, and then they said, we got it all out and it didn't spread to your lymph nodes. And then I was extremely grateful and very relieved. And I, I, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just been so many ups and downs sort of in the midst of it. And I will also say, you know, having a a nurse background with this was also a really complicated piece in it. Because I'm a ICU nurse, I see the worst of the worst. I mean, I see the worst complications of every diagnosis. And I think it was really hard for me to sort of separate myself, and maybe I haven't fully, from uh, my patient experiences of just, I didn't really know what it looked like to hope for the best when I saw all these people who who absolutely, for all the diagnoses that they and their children came in with, they all hoped for the best. And They were the worst scenarios. And I think I didn't know what to do with the possibility that stared me in the face because of everything I've seen at work that I could be one of those too. I, I, you know, what what does hope and optimism look like when you've seen the things that I've seen? And... I think at this point in time now, sort of being uh, a little further out from my diagnosis and having a pretty good prognosis, I, I'm still kind of processing the idea of relative wellness. And what I mean by that is like, I feel very um, hesitant to, when I'm expressing my gratitude for my situation I feel very hesitant to say the phrase it could be worse because it feels very unfair to my patients who have suffered so tremendously and have suffered in the ways that I fear deeply for myself that I could experience. Like it it just feels really unfair to them. Like almost, I don't know if it's a survivor's guilt or something, but it, it almost feels like I'm sort of touting like, well, I'm just a lucky one, you know, and I'm just I, I, I don't want to diminish my gratitude for having a good prognosis. But I, I just find myself I something about it doesn't feel right to make it relative to other people.
0: I yeah, I, I've never been a fan of that phrase. And I think because it goes both directions, like you said, it can diminish someone else's experience. But I also think it can diminish your experience. Like, of course, it could be worse And you're still allowed, you know, to feel some kind of way that you got the diagnosis that you did and that you're Mm. going through what you're going through. And I think um, a friend of mine and I were just kind of debating this idea of like we were talking about the term toxic positivity and we were sort of unpacking what that meant because she said, you know, she is someone who... (sighs) and I am to a point is, is not a like, oh, always look on the bright side, but like, you know, there, you know, yeah, sure. There's always something good. And she was saying that that kind of reframing really helps her. And I, I came to the place of, I think for me, what makes the difference around that, around like that gratitude versus the toxic positivity is it's, it's existing side by side instead of one replacing the other. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say it could be worse, it's like, I I have this bad thing, objectively bad thing, and then I have my gratitude. And because I have my gratitude, it's gonna like swoop in and wipe out the bad thing. Whereas to me, it's like they both exist side by side. Like I have this bad thing mm-hmm. and I have my gratitude. And they're both just gonna sit on the shelf together. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. Yeah, yeah. I I feel I think that's a really important perspective for myself and for all of us to be able to try to embrace a lot more than yeah, the extremes of one or the other. And I also find too that sometimes I'm so sick of talking about myself. (laughs) You know, in these last few weeks. Like I'm so tired of talking about myself and my diagnoses and and I know that it's because people care for me and want to know how I'm doing and I, I don't I don't mind I've been very open with people about it. I don't I don't mind sharing with people but I want to hear how other people are doing too. <laughs> and I I'm you know, I know at this moment I have a number of loved ones who are going through some really really hard things. And it may not be cancer, but they're going through some really hard things, you know, things that are extremely disruptive and burdensome to them. And they'll allude to those things with me, and I'm like, "Tell me more." Like I want to know how Tell me more about how you're doing. And then, well, I don't want to add to your burden. And again, I'm not upset about that. But I, I realized that we have a hard time in general knowing what to do with this idea of relative wellness. Well, if my situation isn't as bad as hers, then I just shouldn't make a big deal out of it. Or I shouldn't, like, burden her with it. And I'm, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like your thing is real, too. And it's not a burden to me. I want to know how you're doing. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I think, I think when it comes to something as like, seemingly big as cancer, you know, I think we all kind of have a hard time knowing how to have conversations around it around people who have the active lived experience of it and I think a lot of that is why I wanted to just be able to talk about it here is like we we need to know how to do it in all its messiness and imperfection and and I just the beauty of the people who can show up to me and be you know gracious to me in that and I think for me also learning to be gracious to other people when they don't know how to be around me with this hanging over is okay too. You, you know, I don't I don't have prescriptions for how people are supposed to be with me because it's all new for so many of us.
0: I'm just thinking about going back to what you said about the nurses are superheroes narrative. And I, I think I'm so grateful for you for being on here and being vulnerable and open and like you said trying to make sense of this here on this podcast because i think people sometimes assume working in a healthcare setting not that it's i don't know not that it hits you less hard or something but maybe oh you you're used to this cuz you see it or it's less scary or something so i think mm-hmm. I just really appreciate you normalizing that like you're, you're, yes, you're a nurse and you're a good nurse, but you're still a human being. And somebody saying you have cancer is always going to be scary.
1: Yeah, there, there really is nothing that prepares you to hear that. And maybe I, in some ways I almost know too much because I'm a nurse. Um, You know, it's been a double-edged sword for sure. I also find myself thinking a lot about the healthcare workers that I've interacted with thus far. Like when I was uh, starting to get my diagnostic mammograms and my biopsies, I was already starting to feel a little bit anxious about what was going on and what, you know, ended up being a reality for me. But being on the patient side in those early scans, I remember going in and thinking, First of all, um, I knew that these staff were very, very busy. I could tell, you know, the the clinic was full and uh, they had a tight schedule and they were doing their professional jobs like they were kind and present and just getting patients through our scans. And I remember thinking at one point, I really just want some comfort from someone And it wasn't that they weren't kind, they were, uh, I don't even know how to say like, not poker faced even, but just, just doing, doing the things that they needed to do with kindness. And, but not especially like.
0: Maybe connection?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think there was a certain, there was a certain disconnect that was there. And as I thought about it more, I realized, one, you know, in, in the clinic setting, it's such a quick turnaround, like that's not necessarily going to be the time and space for people to get into, how are you doing? How are you feeling about things? Are you okay? Like they just didn't have the time capacity for that. And also, you know, they just, again, because there were so many of us needing scans, like they they didn't know each of us, like they they didn't know who was coming in with deep grief or deep anxiety or deep, like, whatever, I'm fine, you know. And so the only way that made sense for them to do their job was to just kind of be neutral about it. And I found myself thinking, I want to, I want to be a good patient to them. Like, I don't want to over overburden them. I don't want to suck up too much of their time and energy. I don't want to be too needy. I'll deal with my anxiety somewhere else. They have other patients to see. And um, it was just an interesting dynamic for me to notice in what I found myself wanting from them, expecting from them, and just kind of like, eh, well, yeah, this isn't going to be the place for that. And that's going to have to be okay.
0: (laughs) I think there's such an interesting thing there because it's not necessarily a lack of kindness or even compassion. Mm -hmm. It is, I think, just that lack of connection that, like you said, you can totally see why that happens or that's necessary for them to get through their day. But, you know, thinking about how you'll come to your practice are you already kind of making those mental adjustments or is it too soon to tell?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it is a little bit early, but, um, you know, one of the ironic adjustments that I find uh, happening is because I think I was always such a, a, like, I want to get to the heart of people and I want to like really acknowledge like the reality of grief. And, and so I think I, as a nurse would often prize more of the like real deep like how do I make those deep connections and then <laughs> now is a patient when I'm like today I actually showed up pretty good and pretty lighthearted, and I don't want people to assume that I'm like super heavy today you know <laughs> like um, and so the people who come and just are like normal I guess and like funny and chill with me like I really appreciate them too and so I think it's actually helping me appreciate like you know what I can show up to my patients and just be really silly too like I I don't have to always just go for the jugular with all of my Patients and their families like tell me your deepest heart burdens and I'm going to be the one to sit with you in that space like I might be that for some of them but I think I'm like appreciating also the people who can just like
0: hey you know we don't have to go
1: there today
0: (laughs) I feel like yeah what you're talking about is really like I guess attunement right Mm. I think attunement like you said of just picking up on what someone needs in that moment and responding in real time
1: yeah Yeah. And I I think then going back to almost full circle, like, you know, the work that I do educating nurses, I think we've just been so far on the spectrum of like, everyone just be tough and strong superheroes all the time. And I'm not saying that like, everyone needs to, you know, drop their capes and go have a big sob fest. Like, I just, I think that to be able to recognize the, the whole people that we are. Like we can be really strong and we can be burying our face in a pillow sometimes for our patients. And then as the patient, like I can be some days just really overwhelmed and really anxious and all of that. And then other days I can feel really hopeful and I don't want people to assume that I'm constantly living in a state, state of anxiety. And Yeah, and then navigating all these conversations with friends. Like, it's just kind of how do we all sort of be attuned, like, (laughs) be sensitive, adjust ourselves to one another, and hopefully communicate safely with one another? Like, oh, I'm actually really honestly okay. Or today I'm actually having a really hard time. Yesterday was good, today's not. And yeah, letting it all be a part of the whole experience. (laughs)
0: So now we have entered sort of the the crux of the discussion, which is apology time. So before we do that, I just want to say again, thank you for your generosity with yourself right now in this conversation and for sharing everything you've shared with us. And I'm going to ask you to share one more thing, which is, Hui Wen, what apology would you like to share?
1: Back when I was in uh, my last year of college, I had hit a point in my life, Uh, like throughout all of my college years, I had been real deeply involved in my church community there. It was really kind of what my life centered around down there outside of my academics. And my last year of college, I just hit a point where I was really burnt out with some of my roles and responsibilities within that church community. Um, I was having some faith struggles that I was trying to work through. And because of all of that, I pulled away a bit from my church community. And I mean, that community had been everything to me. And so I found myself really isolated, a little bit lost, certainly very lonely and, um And then I started to get to know a guy in my Chinese class and we became friends and then it started to evolve into a relationship. You know, he, he was kind and we got along and, you know, it wasn't that he had major character flaws in any way, but I, I knew in my core that I wasn't in that relationship for the right reasons. I, I knew in my core that we weren't ultimately going to be right for each other. Um, and I, I remember, like, just at one point being very aware I was in that relationship because I just really wanted somebody to make me happy because I was so lonely and unhappy and i eventually ended the relationship after a few months but not before he had declared he had fallen in love with me and i broke it off and and i remember him asking me you know what what if you if you knew this wasn't going to work out, what did you think was going to happen when we were getting closer and closer? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? And he was right in that it was so unfair of me. I think to essentially use him um, to to plug a hole rather than than entering into it because I was looking to also give something to somebody that I could potentially really love. Um, And so to this ex-boyfriend from my Chinese class my last year of college, I want to say I am so sorry for disrespecting you. for giving you less than you deserved and for breaking your heart because you didn't deserve that. And I, I hope you are so happy and that you are so loved um, because you really deserve it. And I am just so sorry that I was, I was just so unkind to you.
0: Mm. Wei Wen, thank you so much for just a really lovely conversation and for sharing yourself and your apology with us and let's well as is always the wish with this podcast we hope it reaches who it's intended for so thank you
1: thank you Lindsay. i really enjoyed our conversation
0: Wen sato is a pediatric icu nurse based in los angeles to learn more about Wen, to watch her ted talk and or to hear additional episodes from this podcast visit apologies-podcast.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Because of the algorithms and all the things, it helps other people find the podcast which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies Podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Fenton, with music by TaiZo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on The Apologies Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com/contact.